Hello and welcome to episode 11 of ABB Decoded, the podcast that tries to press pause on our fast-moving lives and shine a light on the technology and trends that are reshaping our world. I'm your host, Anthony Rowlinson, and in this episode we'll be discussing an environmental conference being held in the United Kingdom that has been billed as perhaps the most significant ever for safeguarding the future of our planet. COP26, staged over the first two weeks of November in Glasgow, will highlight many of the myriad concerns over the global climate challenge and try to forge agreements on how best to combat them. The negotiations around COP are intricate and result from months and years of preparation by government, business and lobbying groups ahead of the conference itself. And one organisation with insight into all these competing interests is the Climate Group, a UK-based not-for-profit body that works with business and governments around the world to address climate change. Their Corporate Partnerships Director is Mike Pierce, who joins us today to assess the chances of a positive outcome from COP26 and explain why the negotiations matter to us all. Let's hear from him. Sure, great. Well, thanks for the opportunity to be here today. Uh, my name is Mike Pierce. I'm the Corporate Partnerships Director at the Climate Group. So working with companies to help them think through how and why climate and sustainability matters to them. And that's very much what I've done over the last sort of 25 years or so. Thank you, Mike. And could you tell us a little bit about what the Climate Group is? Yeah, so the Climate Group is a not-for-profit organisation. We're, we're very deliberately an international organisation. We've got offices in London, which is a European office, New York, New Delhi, work elsewhere across the world. And you'll see from those places, these are, these are places which are heavy-emitting sectors, heavy-emitting geographies, and it's been a very deliberate choice to be there. Our mission is to accelerate climate action, to drive it fast. And we put a real emphasis on that, that point about acceleration. There's lots that's happening in the world now about climate. People have seen electric vehicles are starting to emerge. People have seen solar panels on the roofs of people's houses. There's even talk now much more around electric pumps, sort of heat pumps supporting the heating. But how can you make that happen faster than it would happen otherwise? That's our work. And we work with businesses and with governments bringing networks together to help get a collective voice to influence the action and trying to encourage that to go that much faster. Great. And can you explain how you came to be involved in this sector? What's your background? I started off in business strategy, but suddenly realised this was one of the most important areas of that. And I've, I've worked in a number of different aspects, from not-for-profits, within university departments, and now within an organisation working very much with business. But all of those have been about how you can get business leaders to realise that climate change is happening, to understand why that might matter to them personally, and to understand how that then influence also their organisational strategy. So where they can win, where they can get value from climate, which makes a big difference for the way they're able to take it forward in their organisation. So when an event like COP26 takes place, that must be an intense focus for an organisation like yours. What will you be doing in Glasgow? COP26, and the number's a bit of a clue there, this is essentially an annual meeting of the parties. It's the conference of parties. So we have all the countries across the world coming together. We missed last year because of COVID. So we would otherwise have already been on COP27. Because it's a way of bringing together all the countries of the world, you have an opportunity for those leaders to be able to set the tone and direction for the message about where they are taking forward their action. And more than that, it's a negotiation. So you have one key part of the COP is effectively a sort of a period over a year 
of conversations between governments which leads up to positions they will be taking and then negotiation during those two weeks. So copies of process, I guess, is still a key part of that. But we're now at the really tight end of where that's coming to. I mean, we saw a month or so back President Biden in the US making some big announcements about the amount of money that would be going from the US to less developed economies to support them in their action. And that this is part of his movement towards COP. So there's one part is that sort of governmental area and the negotiations, really critical part of it, that's the heartland of that. But over those 26 years, there's a sort of parallel process, which is in the jargon it's talked about non-state actors. What does that mean? It means civil society groups, people, protesters, being part of a conversation. And critically also, it means businesses and state and regional governments. There is just as much of a parallel process through that year and then emerging around COP of companies thinking about what they want to do, positioning their aspects, positioning their new strategies and policies there, and showing how that contributes to the goals that the governments are talking about. And indeed, often putting some pressure on the governments by saying, actually, we need you to do more for us to be able to deliver what we're saying we want to do. It's fascinating what you say about the process that leads up to COP, because the person in the street might not understand that what's going on there is actually, as you said, the pointy end of the negotiations and that there's real stuff happening. So do you think we might come away from COP26 with real new climate goals and commitments? We're at a really interesting moment in this debate now. Like Harris was at five COPs on, and we're at a particularly interesting and important negotiation today because it was a year in which the countries needed to come back with what are called their nationally determined contributions, which is basically saying, what would you do as a country to contribute towards the Paris Agreement? And so you've seen over this year a number of countries actually coming forward with more significant moves. And I mentioned President Biden's piece earlier. China at the beginning of the year had a a carbon neutral by 2060 goal and a peaking of emissions in 2030. So these are parts of that story. Now, I always hesitate to get the numbers exactly right on these things, but people talked about there being a four degrees of warming from existing policies around Paris. And so we talked about the need to bring that down to below two. It's seen that that's been brought down through the existing pledges to around 2.4. Policies are needed to deliver on that because all the policies may not be in place to make 2.4. And of course, 2.4 is far above what was identified. So there's a big piece about additional emissions commitments from governments or actions that will support that. Just to go back to your point on figures there, the 4 and 2.4 you refer to, do you mean degrees centigrade warmer? Yes, that's based on projections that will be occurring based on the policies that are in place over a period. And so the goal that Paris has said has been around well below two. And what's been clear since then is the need to bring that to 1.5 as a maximum because there are significant impacts on ecosystems, on people and populations, even at that level. There seems to be a discrepancy there between the target of 1.5 maximum and what you say we might be seeing. So look, the optimist in me, or indeed I mean, in the sense the positive view of this is, is actually quite remarkable. When the Paris Agreement came through, the two degrees was seen as intensely ambitious and very difficult to get through politically. And yet countries have brought forward meaningful moves towards that. As I mentioned earlier, every percentage point of a degree there makes a difference in terms of the impact on the world. So I think there's really meaningful changes happened. And you can well imagine a world in which that hadn't occurred. I don't think it's to be ignored or played down. 
the extent to which governments and interface with business and civil society and people's protest around this has brought a real move. But then you're absolutely right. There's a big gap still. There's a really big gap still that needs to be addressed. But to stay with the positive note you sounded there, do you see that the climate challenge can be tackled and even that some global warming might be reversed? Are there reasons to be hopeful? I mean, this is not just about the last few years. The world has sort of through industrialization, you go back 100 years, but really since the 1950s, there's been a rapid acceleration in our transport around the world, in our communications, in levels of education, all of which bring many, many good things in society, but have brought significant impact on different ecosystems, on the use of land, on crops, on soil, on water. And the interface of all of that is climate. And so there has been already significant change. And we're seeing this now, this year, crop losses, wildfires in in California and other parts of the, the fires raging in Greece. It's really evident that something is happening. They are part of an increasing frequency of events that is occurring because of climate change. That is already happening. You then have stuff that is effectively baked in because the carbon emissions go into the atmosphere. And what we have already done implies some warming in the future. But as you've already hinted, there are positives to be found. We start to see that with electric vehicles. The sort of direct cost of the electric vehicle now starts within a year or two to match in European markets a petrol engine vehicle. So again, we, we have bits of the system which are moving, where the economics are moving in the right direction because investment is made. But then a lot of areas where we can see the technology trajectory, but it will take time to get there. And so how do you accelerate through that? Mike, could you give us an example of what you mean by accelerating the trajectory? If you look at the sector of something like steel, so a heavy emitting sector, so producing steel as we do now, it's one of the most, most widely used materials, incredibly important to our built environment, to machinery, to the vehicles that we have. So a really important product for the way we live and need to live. It's very heavy emitting at the moment, and steel sector knows that, and the buyers of the vehicles and machinery know that. There is technology which is largely understood to be able to reduce emissions to a net zero steel by 2050. It's not a mystery of how that would be done. It is a lot of money though, and it's a lot of policy which will enable you to say who goes first so that one country or one part of the world doesn't make the steel and feel they can't sell it anywhere because they're being undercut by another part of the world. So how you pull all of that together is the sort of conundrum that we need to deal with is that's part of the conundrum of a COP, is how you get negotiations that get common enough vision on big goals and then quite knotty agreements on how you would work together within a sector to solve a problem like that, which is not a problem of technology, not a problem of recognition of the problem, um, but a problem of how you think through the transition of an economy. And with that, obviously, the transition of people who work in that economy. And so how do you do that, that people feel supported and are supported through that change? And is that where the climate group fits in, in that intersection where you're trying to ease the conundrum? Absolutely. And there's lots of other sorts of organisations that are needed. Our particular approach has been to be able to work with business to both encourage companies, but also make visible their leadership and make visible the leadership in a way that that can be understood and then recognised by investors who can say, ah, there is a market for renewables. Actually, there's like a 100 billion market there from companies that are making a commitment 
to have renewable electricity. So we have 350 companies who've signed up to a thing called RE100, a commitment to 100% renewable electricity. It's a bigger electricity demand than either England or Italy. So it's a G7 country's worth of electricity demand. So investors see that and say, okay, something's happened. That's real. I can make money by servicing that. And secondly, governments can see it. And so those companies can actually have an engagement with countries and say, actually, we need to be able to buy these renewables in South Korea, in Japan, in Australia, in countries around the world. What policies will you have that will enable and support us to be able to do what we want to do? And so the climate group, we're there to say, okay, how can we amplify that commitment and make it visible? How can you have an effective conversation with the government that enables you to come together on your goal? And focusing on COP26 again for a moment, what would be a good outcome from the negotiations? And what do you think we might see come mid-November? It's one of these hardest bits of questions because there will be a devil in detail and we'll be working it out still in the months to come, really what it all adds up to. In some ways, those headline figures we talked about earlier on, that if you were to look at how you can add up and collate the different emissions reduction targets with the governments and how do those stack up to the pathway towards 1.5 will be a key set of metrics. A second key area is there was a commitment, previous COPs, to significant sum of money towards developing economies to support them in the transition. Because people who are suffering from the impacts of climate change are those poorest in the world, the most suffering those are the poorest in the world. So it matters on a direct basis. It also matters to the negotiation process because this is a global um, commitment. And so to bring the world along on this, does require demonstration that that the richer countries are making a move. So emissions reductions, money for developing economies, and then I think landmark moves on key areas, other moves on some of the heavy emitting sectors, steel, concrete, aluminium, chemicals, are gonna be critical parts. And then perhaps finally, some of the big power sector issues, coal and methane. And so commitments and moves on ending key investments in those or reducing investments in those are going to be sort of key aspects to see too. It's interesting to hear you break it down like that because the topic of climate challenge can seem daunting. But when you break it down, that makes it feel more comprehensible in the sense of we can fix this or we can fix that. Is that how you're trying to address the topic in your negotiations? It absolutely is. I mean, it's funny because we've taken a very deliberate approach at the climate group to say, how can we give visibility to corporate performance on very specific topics. And so with that, we're then able to take the message of the companies, which is very unequivocal and clear. These are companies that have said they will transition their fleet by 2030 to 100% electric vehicles. That's a much better message to take to a vehicle manufacturer or to a policymaker than we're aiming to make progress over the next few years and we're sure we're going to do very well particularly is what we then can do is we can start to show the progress that companies are making, that they are buying electric vehicles, that they are buying renewables, they are making reductions in energy use, etc. So you can show the data that says the progress is being made. But clarity and simplicity of message is helpful. And it also, I think it fits a bit with roles that people have in a company. You know, what's your job? Your job isn't to solve sustainability. I mean, very few people have that as a job title. But what have I got to do to sort of procurement for my buildings? Okay, well, I need to think about the steel and the cement and the timber. You know, what am I going to do about that? Very precise areas you can do something with. And I think that breaking that down helps both the policy conversation, but also just day-to-day jobs that people have. Okay, so to take an example that's close to home for this podcast, 
What might that mean for a technology company like ABB? Yeah, I think there's sort of get your house in order stuff. And, you know, and actually to ABB's credit, it's made commitments on RE100, EV100 and EP100. It said, we've got 11,000 vehicles, we'll make that transition. These are important bits about the credibility and actually I think changing the conversation in a company about where you're going. There's a really interesting next step, which is where you have a, you know, a technology or an opportunity to shift how others can act. And I think there's a piece there, which is how can you invest and build the market effectively? What are the ways you do that at pace and that reflects the challenges of science? Okay, well, it's an opportunity or responsibility for a company like ABB Sector. We have a solution here and we need to go at pace on this and we need to invest at pace on this because actually that's what success means for us is that we have actually changed the market and enabled that to happen. So, Mike, you've referred a couple of times to the economic aspects of the climate challenge. Is it the case that economic arguments have to be won in order to make governments commit to climate goals, which businesses can then also commit to? There's probably short and long-term aspects to that. I mean, the long-term view, which I think a lot of business leaders recognise and also see as a personal but also a business imperative, is their company will not thrive in 2050 or 2040 if society is in disarray if the environment is in collapse, if populations are moving because across the world because they cannot get food to eat, if people are poorer. So if you're going to win as a company, you say, okay, what do I need? What world do we need that enables us to society to thrive and our businesses to thrive within that? And that's a straight economic case, but it's also one which requires a bit of vision. You know, so we get both the strategic learning from getting there and also the reputational benefit from getting there. There's a really legitimate bits of the sort of pathway to get to that point. You then get often quite complex economics to get from A to B. I absolutely will say there are the bits that we've been able to see progress on really are helped by the fact that the economics work. And so companies' willingness to make a commitment to go 100% renewable or to buy a 100% electric vehicle absolutely comes because they can see price of renewables of solar has come down 70%, 80% and wind likewise. Because the total cost of ownership for an electric vehicle now basically equating and if you're a delivery company, it makes economic sense to buy it now. So that really does help. But then what's needed is the business leadership say, where do we need to lean in to make those economics shift faster in a sector? And rather than saying, well, I can't do this yet until the government does that, to say, well, we have to do it to get to where we are in 2040, what part of my leverage can I use to be able to influence government? And I guess that's why collective voice does matter because however big your company, your voice is not enough on that. And so you need to say, well, I need to work with these like-minded businesses to be able to get a collective voice that counts. You can't say it's your problem, not ours, but you can only deliver it in collaboration with others. You can't, by owning it doesn't mean you need to be isolated. And so I think that for me is the sort of the key bit of breaking the economics. And in your time working in the sector, do you see progress? Do you see that companies are starting to review their businesses and realise that existing models aren't sustainable in the most literal sense? There's undoubted progress. There are a very large number of companies now that have not just thought about the climate and sustainability, but have got meaningful science-based targets that state where they're going. So I think, you know, we can be really positive about progress that 
business community had made. But of course, you have to hold your hand at the same time and say, look at the other side of this and say, this is not fast enough. There's a lot of companies that haven't moved forward on this agenda yet. What gives me optimism on this is that companies have been able to see opportunity and have started to build that into strategic direction. And so what might have been more of a reputational cover 10 or 15 years ago now is in many more companies a much more strategic part of the organisation's thinking. And do you think it's significant when a company like ABB chooses to become a title partner of a global electric motorsport championship? Does a move like that suddenly raise the whole profile of e-mobility and sustainable technology? I think it does matter, and it, it matters in a couple of directions. The first is it can have an influence on staff and internal engagement around sustainability issues. It can be part of a sense of, actually, oh, my company's going somewhere, and then encourage a deeper conversation in the organisation about how you can take forward climate sustainability issues. The other part is we're really interested in, in the work in electric vehicles about how you make this a new normal, how people can realise that electric vehicles will be the future. And this is both positive and exciting vision of mobility and part of what's going to be the day to day. That bit of positioning, it's, it's more about how you change the public conversation. And so the party complaint in that way for me can be really important. So, Mike, we'll return to COP26 for one final question. Do you think we will look back on this conference and see it as a climate challenge landmark? I really hope so. You know, we have a decade now in which we need to halve emissions to keep on the trajectory. So the stuff that happens now and in the next two or three years is really important. So I think that will be the, the optimistic view of this, by in a sense, a tone of conversation and a commitment among the leaders to go faster. And that's what I'll be hoping to see. It certainly feels like there's a sense of urgency around this year's COP negotiations. So thank you, Mike, for taking the time to share your insights into just what's at stake in Glasgow. And if you've enjoyed this episode of ABB Decoded, why not like, share or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.